As you prepare for retirement, you'll be faced with many important choices. We want you to make the right ones. Welcome to Financial Choices Matter with Charles Scott. Charles is an accredited investment fiduciary. He's well-equipped to help you make sound financial decisions. We want you to experience a meaningful retirement. On our podcast, we believe financial choices matter. Time for another edition of Financial Choices Matter. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Charles Scott, fiduciary advisor at Peloton Capital Management, serving you throughout the Scottsdale area. You can find us online at pelotoncapital.com. Coming up on today's show, we're going to be talking about a great story. Grab your popcorn, tune in, listen close, because Charles is going to tell us about a great time when somebody should have listened They wish they would have listened to the advice that Charles gave them. More on that in a moment. That's going to be a great story that we have for you on today's show. We're also going to talk about some of the bad financial assumptions that folks will often make with their money, with their retirement planning, and with their financial decisions, why we make these bad assumptions, and what are the consequences of them. Maybe even you are, not to be dramatic here, but maybe you're making one of these assumptions when it comes to your financial plan, and we'll see if we can expose a few of those on today's show. But first, we'll start it off by answering one of your questions. It's time for the mailbag. We want to hear from you. And this week's question comes to us from Brent in Glendale. And uh, Brent says, my brother-in-law works in finance, Charles. And I heard him telling some folks at a recent party that everything is overvalued right now and there's nothing worth investing in. What does he mean by overvalued, and do you think his analysis is true? Well, Brent, I have to say that uh, I have some questions on the on the words that are being used to some degree, and you know, your brother-in-law works in finance. I don't know exactly where in finance, so I mean, uh, that to me that matters. Um, and and then you used he used two absolutes, which drive me crazy. Everything is overvalued and nothing is worth investing in. That's gives you no, there's no room there. Everything and nothing. They're both absolutes. So what is, you know, we're, we're getting very really existential overvalued? on the podcast today. It's everything and nothing all at the same time. Yeah, that's right. So you've got what they net out to nothing. It's like a black hole. I don't think that's really the case, but you know, so is, is everything overvalued? And that depends on how you define overvalued. And how do you define value in the first place? There are several different criteria that you can use. And rather than get into the, the, the minutia of what it really means, there's always something that's a value. It just depends on how you want to define that. And that goes along with the idea that there's always something worth doing. There's never nothing. It just depends on, again, if you hear me saying it depends, that's almost always my favorite answer when people ask me questions. It's It depends because it depends on so many different things. I'm going to answer the question of overvalued. And I'm going to, most of the time in my experience, most people are saying, well, the price earnings va- ratio is high. The price that's being charged for the earnings that companies are creating, you know, the price of the stock for those earnings is high. And there is a tendency sometimes for that to be a fairly good indicator of value. Uh, if it's too high, then it's hard for companies to justify potentially the, the cost of to buy the stock given the profits that they're generating. But that's just one indicator. And so, and, it, and I've never read anything that has ever said that if you just focus on price earnings ratios all the time and therefore valuation of all of this, that you're always going to come out ahead because you don't. Uh, stuff works all, some stuff works all the time. Nothing works every single time. 
So, you know, it's, you, you just have to use that as with a grain of salt, I guess. And if it was really true, why would I be? And I, and I had some fascinating piece of piece of knowledge, Brent, that maybe your brother-in-law thinks he has. If it was something that I knew was going to work, I sure as heck wouldn't share it with everybody at a cocktail party. I'd keep it to myself, but right. that's just the way my brain works. So I'm a big proponent of never using absolutes. And so I just used one in that statement. I've done that before, but it, I'm trying to get the point across that there's always something that's worth investing in if you do the right kind of research and you you understand what the potential is and you know whether it's overvalued or not, that may not make any difference. It's it's simple. People buy stuff and stuff goes up in price because there's more people that want to buy it than want to sell it. It's simple supply and demand. It's economics 101. And it doesn't have to be any more complicated than that in many respects. If people don't want it, they're going to sell it and they're happy to sell it at pretty much any price because they just don't want it anymore. So that means that supply is in control over demand and the price goes down. It's not any more complicated than that a lot of the time. Yeah. So I appreciate the... I appreciate the question, Brent. I didn't mean to pick on you for the the terms that you used, but uh, we always try to get clarification for some of those key words in the financial world when we're talking with folks to make sure that when we use that word, we're both saying the same thing and understanding what we both mean when we say it. I mean, risk is the perfect example. There's more than a dozen different kinds of risk, but most people just mean one thing. They mean don't lose money, but that's not the only definition of it. So Words matter. I'm coming back to my English literature degree. I beat that idea to death, but words matter because if you don't understand, if I'm saying something and Walter, you're saying something completely different, but we're using the same word, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. So it, right. it makes a big difference. What what progress have we made if that's the if that's the case? Yeah, exactly. Good points as always, Charles. Uh, wise words, and uh, I think just illustrating for us once again how important it is to consider. Uh, what we're saying, how we're saying it, who we're listening to, where we're getting that advice. And uh, it's a really good question that you ask on the show today, Brent. Thank you for that one. If you'd like to submit a question to be featured on a future program, you can do that by going to pelotoncapital.com. That's pelotoncapital.com. Well, it's story time. I'm curious this week, Charles, if you can tell us about a time when somebody did not listen to your advice from a financial perspective and later came back to you and said that they wished that they had. Sadly, um, <laughs> I, I would like to think that it happens too often. Uh, the The downside of that is they usually don't come back and admit that they were wrong, which is human nature, and I can I can totally understand that. I have a a little specialty niche of knowledge and and experience in that I have done for a long time pre divorce financial planning, and these are working with couples, husband, wife, or sometimes both of them as they're going through divorce. It's, you know, we're not helping them plan the divorce, but we're helping them do the financial planning component of it because they're going to be dividing and they're, they're going to be dividing assets and liabilities and income going forward. And we work hand in hand with the legal side of things, the family law attorneys and mediators. Um, but it's, it's trying to get people to understand there's a, there's a pretty much going to be a set outcome of this, and that's been predicated on state laws and case laws of actual 
divorce cases. And, you know, we're in Arizona now, and I did this also when we were in Washington before we moved here. Both of them are community property states. So the laws in, in a community property state are sometimes a little different from non-community property states. So when you go through the division of assets and liabilities, um, you know, most of the time we just try to explain to folks, you're going to kind of end up dividing it in half. But that doesn't mean that the halves are identical to each other, just half. You might have, there's an advantage to one or the other and not a disadvantage to the other person by taking one asset or liability over another one. So it's going through and, and doing that uh, and helping people understand that. And sometimes that's been a hard concept for people to grasp because many times, probably most of the time, somebody's hurt and angry as because they're getting a divorce. And obviously, if, if, if that wasn't the case, they wouldn't be in that process. And, and the other thing that is hard for them to understand sometimes is that the attorneys that are involved are legal experts. That's what they're supposed to do. That's, but they're not necessarily financial experts. They, have, they may have a lot of experience doing this, but they still don't understand some of the nuances of how to make a really smart choice when it comes to dividing assets and liability. I've done enough of these over the years that I could tell you a bunch of stories you probably wouldn't believe were true. But the most recent example was a husband and wife came in and we started to work together with, with both of them because they, they didn't want this to be a battle. They wanted it to be a reasonably amicable di divorce. And I thought, you know, congratulations to you guys. Let me show you how we do this and what we're going to do. And then one of the spouses decided, no, they really wanted legal representation and they kind of wanted to turn it into a fight, which is too bad. Um, and so I wrote, I wrote a note to them and I've done this on, on multiple occasions with other people. I wrote a note to them and, and I wrote a number on a piece of paper and I put it in an envelope and I sealed the envelope and I gave it to each of them. And, and I said, when you're all done with this, open this up and this is how much it's going to cost you to get a divorce in, in attorney's fees. And I'm not picking on the attorneys, but people have no idea how complicated it can be uh, from that point of view. And one of the one when it was all set, and it was a pretty good sized number. Uh, one of the people came back when it was all said and done because we had we had ceased being able to help them from a financial planning point of view because they just wanted to go duke it out, which is again we think a terrible idea. Um, and they came back afterwards and said, man, and this isn't the first time this has happened, but they said, you were right. You were within like $5,000 of how much you said it was going to cost. I said, yeah. And, you know, I mean, and I said, and I had already told them, and this is how everything is going to get divided. And they said, and you were, ex you know, you were exactly right. This is how it all got divided, but it cost us a huge chunk of that total value of their marital assets to get a divorce. You know, and they said, well. We should have listened. I said, yeah, but you didn't, you didn't. And that's, it was your choice. So, you know, we can provide good information, but sometimes people just don't take, don't take your counsel. And again, that's their choice. If you don't, you know, from our point of view, we've, we, we've had a lot of experience in this thing and, and it's, there's a standard way to do it. And there's a common sense way to do it. And there's a way that does not have a negative impact on either one of them necessarily, and certainly not purposefully. But they, you know, we've always said that in a, in a divorce, from a financial point of view, if you can both live with the outcome, but neither one of you are happy, then that's a good one. It's <laughs> uh, probably Because if to somebody's look at happy, it. then somebody else got gypped. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. So I wish they would have listened. They didn't. Um, but you can't help everybody.
Yeah. Well, the things that lead us to sometimes make bad financial choices are different. Uh, you know, sometimes it's we just truly make the bad choice. We have all the information. We even have guidance in a particular direction, yet we choose to, to maybe go against that. And sometimes it's a good thing, uh, sometimes not so good thing, as in that case. Um, other times we might make bad financial decisions because we were operating off of the wrong information, or maybe we were just operating off of the wrong assumptions. And so I want to take a few minutes here, Charles, to, Charles, to hit maybe some of the most popular bad assumptions we see people make in the financial world. And we'll start with Social Security, because this is definitely a biggie. And a lot of people think that if they delay Social Security, if possible, if they can delay it, it's going to yield the most income over the long haul. And on the surface, that's kind of right, but a little bit more digging, and that's kind of a bad assumption maybe for your situation. You're absolutely right. I mean, Social Security is one of those things that everybody that works in this country participates in one way or another. You you pay into it, um, or you're collecting benefits coming out the other side. And on the surface, it seems simple. And then as soon as you start to really sit down and figure out how this really works, uh, it becomes gigantically uh, complicated. And a lot of assumptions that we've heard over the years um, come from people saying, well, my neighbor did this, and so I should do the same thing. Uh, and nobody's, no two people are the same. Their circumstances are not identical. Every, you know, uh, a lot of the, the, the initial question is, when do I want to take it, depends on a couple of critical factors. One of them is, how long do you think you're going to live? Is your family history good? Do, did your parents and grandparents live to be older um, or not? That would make a difference of when you might want to turn it on and start it. Uh, you can start at 62, age 62. Um, uh, there are some other rules that say it could actually be earlier than that, depending on circumstances, but let's not worry about that right now. And the other thing is, um, do you need the money or don't you need the money? So if you delay, and it's fascinating because I just was reading an article from a magazine, a trade magazine of ours that was a couple months old, and I finally got around to cutting out a real interesting statistic, and that is, you know, at at age at 62 – you can claim social security. And it's fascinating to me that 42% of men do and 48% of women claim at age 62. For most people right now that are baby boomers, um, they're in that maybe at age 65, but probably age 66 is their full retirement age. That's when they, that's, they haven't, that's the, not the most that they can get, but that's when they're going to get their full social security benefit at probably 65 or 66. But it's, you know, I mean, half of the women practically take it before they ever get there. Um, and you can continue to wait till you're 70 and your benefit is going to go up and up and up until you get to 70. And then it caps out because it won't go up any more than that. Uh, but if you took it at age 62, you're going to have, you're going to guarantee yourself that you're going to get 25% less benefit every month than you would have if you'd have waited till your full retirement age. And just let's just say that it's that, it, that it's 65. You, you're always going to be 25% behind what you could have been. And if you wait past 65, 66 and wait till you're 70, then you're going to guarantee yourself that you're going to get an 8% bump in your benefit every year. Plus, there could be some cost of living adjustments added on top of that. So you're going to give yourself a 32% raise for sure over that period of time, if you just wait to 70. And so the idea of, I'm going to make more money. And if you, 
I'm going to make more money if I claim it early as opposed to waiting. There's that offset of you're going to have a reduced amount or a greater amount depending on at which age you claim it. Most of the time for most people, and we've run lots of calculations on this, most of the time the crossover point, meaning at what point do I break even if I start early as opposed to waiting, most of the time it's about 12 and a half or 13 years out. Now, it's going to depend because it's not exactly the same for everybody. But, you know, so if you need it and your life, if you need it, you need the money, you need the income from this and your life expectancy might not be significant, at least your family history, then it might be a good idea to start early. There are some other <clears throat> social security's got about 2,700 rules and thousands of interpretations of those rules. So to think that it's really simple and there's just kind of a one size fits all, it's not. So I don't think you could stump us with a social security situation because we've spent that much time trying to study it. And my partner um, is a whiz at this. So um, it's, it's, you know, the, the two big, the two big, it depends issues again are, do you need the money? Are you financially dependent on those in those dollars being turned on early? And what is your life expectancy going to be? Uh, and what do you think it's going to be? How does it, you know, have you lived a healthy lifestyle or have you not lived a healthy lifestyle? That could make a big difference too. So it's just trying to figure out, you know, what fits and it's going to be dependent on those key circumstances. So that's a long answer to a relatively short question with a question being the thing that most people make faulty assumptions about. So it's one of the ones that makes us craziest the most, probably. Uh, people coming in saying, well, I'm going to do this and would say, well, you, you know, if you did that or did this or this and that or the other thing, and they'll go, well, I never knew that. There's a, there's, there's a lot of planning that can go into and strategic financial planning that can go into figuring out what's the optimal time to do Social Security. And it isn't just to make this even more complicated, I apologize for that right now, Walter, but to make this okay. even more complicated is the whole idea of not only am I claiming the benefit, but what are the tax ramifications? Because I might, might you know, depending on what my income is, whether it's taxable income or tax-free income, as I re get into retirement, your Social Security benefit could be taxed on up to 85% of your Social Security benefit could become taxable income to you, and you've got to pay income tax on it. And if you think back and say, well, I already got taxed on it when it went in. Now I'm going to get taxed on it when it comes out. Yeah, that's the way it works, unfortunately. So there's more strategic planning that has to happen with respect to that. And most people have never even thought about that. So mm -hmm. Social Security ends up being kind of a big, giant can of worms. It's a, and, it's but a you big can sort one. through them. Yeah, yeah, really uh, big issue, I think, um, that a lot of people overlook or don't put enough thought into how it's going to impact and affect their particular situation. But uh, you, you gave us kind of a thorough covering there. We could obviously spend a whole podcast talking about not just that one assumption of Social Security, but dive really deep into all the right choices to make. But we won't do that. Uh, yeah, we could, we could bore them to death with that one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, let, let's cover one more assumption that often leads people astray, uh, Charles, and that's that you know, let's say you're offered, uh, you know, some sort of lump sum for your account. Maybe it's a pension buyout or something like that. And there's kind of this view out there that taking the lump sum is always going to be the best approach. I know that uh, you've given your, your speech already about absolutes from our question earlier in the podcast. But what, what about taking a lump sum? When is it the right approach? When is it not? And why do people have that bad assumption sometimes? There's a couple of parts to that. I think there's a big security blanket feeling and it's a valid one 
of someone saying, well, I don't want to take the lump sum. I want to take the lifetime income because I'm going to get lifetime income. It's guaranteed because if you're working for a company that has a pension and they're giving you that option, if you do a calculation of taking the lump sum versus the lifetime benefit, you have to stick some numbers in there to see which one makes the most sense. And it's going to just, again, depend somewhat on how long am I going to live? What's my life expectancy? That does make a difference. Um, the other thing that happens if you take a lifetime income and you live a long time, you, you've got $3,000 a month, let's say, coming in from your pension plan for the rest of your life. But if you live, if you took it at age 65 and you lived for 25 years, everything that, that $3,000 a month is going to have the buying power of $1,500 a month. It's going to be halved over that period of time. So a, a lifetime payment does not keep up with inflation. And that can be a big deal. Again, it comes back to life expectancy. How long do you think you might live? If you took a lump sum and, in, and invested it, you are going to potentially have the ability to keep up with inflation over time. If you put, put it in some things, it will grow over that period of time. Um, you know, you have to invest in stocks and equities and stuff like that, but you can do that on a conservative basis. So that's one of the big differences is, you know, uh, a lump sum gives you the potential ability to, um, you know, invest and keep up with inflation, whereas a lifetime income piece does not. The other thing is if you had a choice of today and you either had to take the payout, the lifetime income that give you, or you had to, or your broker was saying, oh no, roll it out into a lump here. We'll take the lump sum and then we'll buy an annuity for you in the marketplace. You're going to get a better deal from the company. And, and there's a very specific reason. And that is they have just gigantically more buying power. And so they're going to get a better price from the insurance company for a lifetime income that you can get on your own. It's just a fact. Um, there was a, I don't know, it was a couple of months ago, there was an article that said Federal Express just bought $6 billion worth of lifetime income annuities as for their pension fund for their employees, 41,000 employees that they covered with this. They offset their potential liability of their 401k obligations, I mean, their, their pension obligations, by, by transferring that to a I think it was Prudential Insurance. I might have been. Oh, it was MetLife. It was MetLife. They transferred that risk to the insurance company. So I have never had a client come in and say, well, I've got a $6 billion lump. Can you go find me a good annuity, lifetime annuity payment? It's like, that doesn't, that's never happened. But it does in the, in the, in the pension world. So if your company is going to give you that choice, you need to weigh it carefully. But I, to me, the, the, the bigger issue is inflation. Uh, a lump sum lets you keep up with inflation to some degree. A life, uh, not taking the lump sum and taking the lifetime and the income payment just doesn't work that way because nobody's going to index it to inflation that I've ever seen. That's the answer. And thank you, Walter, for the, for stating in the beginning that always is an absolute and we never like to use absolutes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. We never like to do that. <laughs> Uh, just, uh, the material writes itself sometimes here on financial choices matter. I'll tell you yeah, what, <laughs> that's right. we can't help ourselves. Great. Uh, great guidance today though, I think makes a lot of sense because often that's the way we hear things in the media or it's just the way things get stuck in our head. Sometimes Charles, that's how sayings become sayings and trends become trends. You kind of hear something and you start to think for a while, ah, that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. You, you always take the lump sum, you know, never, 
never consider messing with the other way way around. Just take the lump sum. That's the way to go. That's the way so-and-so did it, and I, I've never heard anybody doing it the other way. You know, and these things get stuck in our head as absolutes that way, and so it's good to kind of, you know, disabuse ourselves of those notions every once in a while, so... We appreciate your guidance on the show, as always, today. Charles, taking us through the uh, Social Security ramifications we need to be aware of, the uh, lump sum conversation. Thanks for the good story earlier on in the podcast as well. And, hey, Brent, good question to kick us off today. We appreciate that as well. Charles, we'll talk to you again on the next podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Super, Walter. Looking forward to it. Uh, for Charles Scott, I'm Walter Storholt, reminding you to ask Charles your questions. If you have comments, concerns about your financial plan, about retirement, uh, come in, have a conversation with him. He's uh, in uh, Scottsdale, where you can find him in the office. You can set up a time to meet by calling 480-513-1830. That's 480-513-1830. Or you can uh, see us online at pelotoncapital.com. And we'll talk to you next time on Financial Choices Matter. Financial planning and investment advisory services are provided by Peloton Capital Management Limited, a state-registered investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. No one should assume the information presented here serves as a receipt of or substitute for personalized individual advice provided by Peloton Capital Management. For more information, visit www.pelotoncapital.com.